spend a, a little time together now considering that second section we read, considering the discovery of the empty tomb and then Jesus coming to meet with his disciples. And uh, if you don't have a Bible or if you didn't open one before, maybe now would be a good time to do it. It's John chapter 20. And if you need a Bible, just pop your hand up and our stewards at the back will be really pleased to bring one over to you. Uh, it's John chapter 20 and I'm afraid I didn't write down the page number, so you'll have to find it by yourselves. But John chapter 20. We are surrounded by people who are busy scoring us and rating us all of the time. Uh, if you have a job, you'll almost certainly have enjoyed that or endured that great joy of the performance review, right? That annual ritual where everyone must be assigned some sort of score or rating for how they've done in the year past. Uh, periodically, you get to hear how your superiors think you're doing, or if you've if you've ever applied for a loan or for a mortgage, then you'll know what it's like to have your credit rated, to have people consider uh, and uh, measure how you are with your money and how trustworthy you are, how creditworthy you are. Most of us, at one time or another, will have been assessed through, through an exam at school or, or at uni. Most of us have, have sat exams, have had people push us and prod us and test us with questions to see what we can do. Also, they can stick a number on us or a letter on us, rank how well we have done compared to others. This ranking and rating goes on all around us in our lives today. These numbers, these letters, they can have a huge impact on how it is that our lives turn out. Not to stress you out too much just now if you've got exams ahead of you, but your life does depend on it. Not in a very big way. Not in a very big way. But it's true these ratings can be a huge deal for how others will treat us, for, for what opportunities we're going to get in future. But I want to ask you tonight not to think about how others will rate you. I want you to think tonight about how it is that you rate yourself. I want you to take a minute just now and to think, well, how am I doing? How would I grade my life? How would I rank my performance just now? What, what would you say about yourself? Let me sharpen it a bit further. Now I want to ask you to rate yourself in terms of your faith. If you'd say you have faith here tonight, I want you to give yourself a grade. I want you to give yourself a letter from A to F in terms of how your faith is just doing now. How strong is it? How clear is it? How lively is your faith? Just a moment for you to reflect like now. I'm not going to ask you to share, but I want you to have in your head a sense for where you would score your faith right now between this superhero A over here and this failure F over here. Where would you rate your faith right now? Just a moment to consider that. Have you got a letter? Hold on to that. I doubt it's escaped your notice that it's Easter weekend. 
And tonight we've read a good chunk of the Easter story together. And as I've been reflecting on this through this week, thinking about what it is that we should look at together tonight, particularly considering that last section of the story we read, the story of the empty tomb, I want to share with you something that has really struck me in that story, something which I think can encourage us, uh, but something that I also think should challenge us. So come with me back into that garden where the tomb was for a minute, and let's consider what happens there. Now, Mary is the first one on the scene, and perhaps you'll remember from the reading earlier, she was also the last one on the scene at the cross. How would you rate Mary's faith? If you were going to rate Mary's faith, how would you rate Mary's faith? Well, on the one hand, we'd have to notice her dedication. It's still dark, the text tells us, when she comes out to the grave. The sun is just rising and she's already on her way to the tomb. And remember, this isn't just any tomb, right? This is the tomb of somebody that these powerful religious leaders hated so much they killed him. Even though they had to connive and push and cash in their chips with the Roman authorities to get it done, his friends are not going to be flavor of the month. Making it clear that you're one of them. Making it clear that you're one of them when there aren't really other people around, when nobody might notice if perhaps you just disappeared. Well, it's definitely well into risky territory and it's all the more admirable when you consider The guys who followed Jesus, where are they? Nowhere to be seen, right? Later on, we find out where they are. They're they're behind locked doors in hiding. But Mary, she is dedicated. She's courageous. She's right there. So how would you rate her faith? On the one hand, you would have to give her some pretty high marks, wouldn't you? But I want to show you another side here, too. Uh, despite all of her dedication, right, despite her willingness to risk, I actually think when you read the words, you find she is not overflowing with faith at all. Notice with me in verse 2, how she expresses her discovery to the other disciples when the stone's been rolled away. What does she say in verse 2? She says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Her conclusion, her assumption on seeing that the tomb has been opened is that Jesus' body has been taken and put somewhere else. That is to say, Jesus' body is still very much a dead body. It's not doing anything by itself, right? It needs to be taken somewhere. It needs to be put somewhere. And to be fair, that doesn't seem like a very unreasonable conclusion, because dead bodies pretty much uniformly stay dead, don't they? They don't get up to that much. When the boys do get to the tomb, hearing her reports, it only takes them moments to notice something very strange, something which it seems Mary did not notice. These strips of linen which had wrapped Jesus' body and this cloth from his head, they're no longer attached to the body How come Mary didn't spot that? Well, I think she jumped to her conclusion the moment she saw that the tomb had been disturbed. The moment she caught a glimpse from a distance of the stone being somewhere it shouldn't, she she legged it to get the boys right away. Now, John, more reverently, he, he stops at the door, but Peter, being classic Peter, barges straight in, 
what are they going to make of this new data? This mystery fabric, this evidence. Well, verse 8 tells us. When John did finally step inside the tomb, it says he saw. Right, he saw these linen fabrics and this headcloth, and he believed. John, on reading this account, John is the very first to believe Jesus has actually risen from the dead that morning. So where is John on a faith scale? I don't know, perhaps a B? He's doing quite well, perhaps a B? He didn't believe out of the gate that Jesus was risen. He didn't, when Mary arrives and saying, somebody's disturbed the tomb, he doesn't say, well, yeah, I knew that. That's exactly what I was expecting. Uh, that's because Jesus is risen. He still had to go and check, didn't he? He still needed some evidence to push him over the line. But, but he did run fast to get that evidence. And once he had it, he was pretty kicked to believe Jesus had risen. So, so John, we're going to give John a B for his faith. It's not bad. Peter? Peter's here as well. Well, Peter, we don't know. The text tells us that John believed. And I think when it tells us that, it's reasonable to conclude that the fact it doesn't say the same thing about Peter means Peter is still in the confused category still. Perhaps he's thinking more X-Files than resurrection. Perhaps he just needs a bit more time and reflection to kind of sort it all out in his head. Or perhaps really he's still hung up on his own shameful recent past. Jury's out on Peter, but if we had to give him a grade right now, I'd say Peter probably gets a D, right, a D. But before long, Peter and John are off the scene. Mary is alone, again, with this empty tomb, or at least so she thinks. But when she finally gets around to actually looking into the tomb, through her tears to see what it was that Peter and John saw, she gets a big surprise. There are people there. There are two people there. Now this is, this is quite extraordinary actually. Unlike basically every other time in the Bible when angels show up, Mary seems totally nonplussed. Almost everywhere else angels show up, the first thing they have to say is, do not be afraid. Now, presumably because they're pretty terrifying. But Mary, Mary's so focused on the missing body, she's not even bothered by two angels appearing out of nowhere in the tomb. So they start the conversation a bit differently from what they're used to, uh, from how they're accustomed. Woman, why are you crying? But Mary is still completely clear. Despite the fact that she's standing in the presence of these two angels, what she is looking for is very much still a dead body. Nothing supernatural going on here. Look in verse 13. Mary's words again. They have taken my Lord away. I don't know where they have put him. She's still looking for a dead body that can be taken and put places. And then another person shows up. This garden is getting crowded. Mary turns to glance at the new arrival, she guesses it's the gardener. Maybe he'll know what's happened to the body. And notice again, she's still looking for this dead body. Verse 15, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. She's looking for a body that you can carry around and put places and get and bring, right? So how is it we should rate Mary's faith? 
I don't think we could be any clearer that she, unlike John, is looking for a still dead Jesus. There's no indication at all, despite all these opportunities to reconsider her conclusion, that she's expecting anything apart from Jesus' dead body. Is it fair of me to frame that as a lack of faith? Well, how much do you think Jesus' followers should have been expecting and believing there'd be an end game which involved Jesus' dead body? In John's gospel, if you read the whole of John's gospel, there are hints and pointers that Jesus was going to rise again. Perhaps if you know your Bible, you'll remember Jesus talking about the temple being torn down and raised again in three days. And John notes as he's writing that, he says, later on the disciples remembered this and knew Jesus was talking about his body. That's back in chapter two. But John's gospel is written consciously to fill in and augment the other gospels. We have in the other gospels the record that Jesus makes it abundantly clear to his disciples again and again that Jesus is not just going to die, but that he is going to rise after three days. It's not even like there's a mystery timeline. We find Jesus telling his disciples this three times in Mark. Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.34. As plain as it could be, die three days later, rise. Could Mary really be completely unaware of this? Is it conceivable? Maybe just about, but given how dedicated she's shown herself to be, right? Given how she is really in the center of the action here, given that Jesus has been in the grave long enough for his followers to reflect on what's going on, surely, surely somebody's been talking about this. Surely somebody's saying, don't you remember Jesus said to us that when he died, in three days he was going to rise? Surely she must have known Jesus had said this was not the end of the story, right? Seems to me it is much more reasonable to conclude Mary just didn't believe what he had said. Now she loved Jesus. That's very plain, she loved Jesus. She was dedicated to Jesus, absolutely. But it seems that she didn't really believe him when it came to this point. Maybe she thought there'd be some more spiritual or mysterious fulfillment to the things he had said. So what do you give Mary for her faith? If you're generous, you give her an E. But most of us should give her an F. John's a B, okay? Mary's an E or an F. Peter's somewhere in between. Well, how did you rate your faith? Here's why I want us to think about this. Look at what happens next. Look at what happens next. Mary, Jesus says. It's one word, and this one word changes everything. What she had simply not believed what seemed absolutely impossible to her was something that had actually happened. Jesus had risen just like he said he would. That's not a dead body. There's a vibrant and living body, a, a, a physical, a tangible, a touchable body right there. Something she immediately set about proving because Jesus has to ask her to let go. Can you imagine what is going on in Mary's head? 
I think on the one hand, we often concentrate on this overwhelming joy that she's going to be feeling. He's alive. When we're so familiar with this story, it is hard to get our head around what it must be like for you to discover somebody you were certain was dead is alive. Can you imagine that? So on the one hand, she's thinking, he's alive, not dead. But don't you think, at the same time, there must also have been some shame at her doubt, at her faithlessness, at her inability to believe what Jesus had told her was going to happen? Don't you think inside of her there must have been that gnawing fear of what is going to happen now? Jesus knows people. He sees inside people, and he can see inside me, and he knows I was certain he was dead. Don't you think she must be thinking, how is Jesus going to respond to an F? Surely Jesus is only going to reject somebody like that. Is that perhaps why she clings on quite so hard? But then he speaks again. Jesus, as John tells us, is full of grace and truth. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. There is no rebuke. There's no criticism. There's not even a gentle, I told you so. There's no, how could you have doubted this, Mary? There's no, I'm very disappointed in you. It's as if, with a warm smile, Jesus says, Mary, it is okay. You can't keep holding on to me. You do have to let go, but I'm, I'm still around for a while yet, and I have work for you to do. Mary, who scores an F for faith, is the very first to see the risen Jesus. Mary, who scored an F for faith, becomes the apostle to the apostles. She's the one who's sent to the apostles. She's not sidelined. She's put absolutely central stage. There's no bigger role she could have played at that moment. How's that for grace? And you see how grace-filled the message for the apostles is as well? Jesus doesn't say, go to those doubting failures, those faithless losers, though they've been that. He doesn't say, go to those deserters, though they've been that too. Instead, he says, go to my brothers. Go to my brothers. He labels them sons of his father, children of God. He doesn't reject or judge them. He embraces them. So I wonder how you scored your faith. I wonder how I score my faith. Uh, have you failed, God? 
I have failed him. Have you let him down? I have let him down. Well, where does that leave us? Benched, uh, relegated, set at the back of the queue? I want you to see today that is not how our Jesus works. He's not looking for a reason to push you off of the team. He's not looking for a fault that he can fire you over. He's not looking for a reason to cast you as supporting crowd number 432, lost in the background. Now, Jesus has work for his disciples, even those with little faith. In fact, we might go so far as to say perhaps it seems here he has work especially for those with little faith. He has this commission for Mary to go and to tell. And he has a commission for others too. So let's follow the story into its next step. Come into the next scene where we're huddled in a room. The doors are locked. What do you smell in this room with the doors locked? Do you smell courage? Do you smell boldness? No. You smell fear. Fear of these Jewish leaders, this wondering of who are they going to come for next? Who's the crowd in this room? Is this a crowd of winners and successes who've got it all right? Ready to take on the world with boundless faith? No. This is a room filled with failure and doubt. There's a mystery at the empty tomb for sure, but who really knows what happened there? They've had this strange report from Mary, but she's always, frankly, been a bit excitable. How are you going to grade the faith of that room, right? How are the disciples doing all together? D? E? And then suddenly... Jesus is there. I wonder if you have ever thought about the first words he uses when he shows up. Peace be with you. Now he means it, so he repeats it to them again. Peace be with you. How different is that to what they were expecting? Either he was dead, and there's no peace for them, only doom, or he's alive and they've deserted him, disappointed him, and doubted him. But rather than a rebuke, rather than a rejection, rather than a judgment, instead what Jesus has for them is peace. It goes beyond peace. The word is richer than that. Not just the absence of war and the end of hostility, but this is kind of a restoration to rightness. This is things back to how they should be made whole. Jesus' first message to the downcast, to doubters and deserters is, peace be with you. And then he goes further, just like he did with Mary. He's not just bringing peace to them. He's bringing purpose to them as well. Jesus, when he's picking his team for the most crucial work in the universe, do you know what he does? He picks them. These losers, these failures, these faithless ones, here's the words he has for them. As the Father sent me, 
I am sending you. Jesus is departing. He's on his way to be with the Father. And the mission, his mission passes from him to them. What a privilege. What an incredible privilege, despite their wavering and their uncertain faith, despite their limited and fragile obedience, despite their failures and their struggles, the mission passes to them. Jesus has chosen to send them. And he also chooses to send us. Now tonight, however you scored your faith, I think Jesus has words for you too. I think Jesus means to send you out too, to send us out. We, despite our often weak faith, we've been embraced by the risen Jesus not rejected. We, despite our doubts, we have been sent out by the same Jesus to speak of him. A surprise, right? It's a real surprise. A privilege? It's an extraordinary privilege. The most important thing going on in the universe. And we've been brought into it. A priority. Here's where I want to end tonight as I close a final observation on this privilege of being sent. Being sent on a mission, being sent on an urgent mission, a critically important mission. Here's the thing it is likely going to get in the way of business as usual for us. I think we need to recognize this a bit more as Christians. I mean, imagine you are a part of a crack squad of SAS soldiers. You've been assigned the most important mission in this giant conflict. You've been dropped deep behind enemy lines with special equipment. Isn't it kind of obvious that your mission should become the central priority? Don't you think by any chance it might mean we have to put some other things aside that it might get in the way of them a bit, you know, finishing that series on Netflix, trying out that restaurant that we really wanted to try out, reaching the next level on our video game, learning how to frame the perfect photo. Imagine your commander has given you the privilege of the most overwhelmingly important mission. Isn't it kind of obvious that this should become the center of our lives? And look at the disciples. Do you know what this did for them? This totally messed up their lives. Totally messed it up. Things were going fine for them. They were fishermen, a bunch of them, tax collectors. It was working out okay. Jesus gives them this mission, and it totally messes up their lives. Takes them over completely. Should push other things out of the way for us too. We should put other things aside to pursue it. Easter so potently reminds us that it was important enough for Jesus to spend his life on this. We have a plain picture of the sort of commitment this mission requires. Our commanding officer, the one we call Lord, he's given it his all so surely. 
as we are embraced by him and engaged in the same mission, surely we should be giving it our all too. Let's pray together.